This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We have a very interesting show for you today. Hugh Roberts, CHR Metals. He was at the Global Mining Symposium, interviewed by Frick Ells, executive editor of Mining.com, and they had a very interesting interview on the relationship between commodities, China, and the global economy, particularly how China's economy affects commodity prices. And we all know it does. It being, you know, a significant amount of the global population and the world's second biggest economy. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be saying it, the second biggest, but here we go. And so, yeah, we have a very interesting topical discussion and this ongoing open question of the super cycle and what it means and if it's here and if it, there is one. I think this just helps illuminate what's going on with that thesis and I think it just helps give some more data, particularly the impact of China on this. And, you know, listening to it, it was really interesting what Hugh Roberts said was that, you know, the first commodity super cycle we could trace to China and the Chinese economy, particularly China joining the WTO in 2002. That was like the inflection point, according to Hugh Agro, who has offices in China and who tracks tons of prices. That was interesting. And he was suggesting at the end of the interview that this low carbon economy may be that factor this time around, should we have a super cycle. And as he acutely pointed out, nobody was talking about a super cycle in 2002. And maybe that's the one sort of big question on the thesis is if everybody's declaring a super cycle right, you know, near the bottom or at the start, like, does that somehow invalidate the thesis on a certain level? So very interesting discussion with on macro. We also have Revival Gold. We're welcoming them as a sponsor, as you heard at the beginning of the episode. And I have a little mining minute with Hugh Agro. It's actually two or three minutes, but I encourage you to listen closely because Hugh has some very interesting things to say about not only their project, the Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho, which sounds like a pretty important project for the state of Idaho. But he also has some interesting thoughts on gold and where things stand. So great track record, was with Kinross and uh, another major company. It's in the interview, so that is coming up. And other than that, I hope you had a nice Easter. It's nice to get a little long weekend. Yeah, markets, again, it feels like a little bit wait and see. Some people are ready for this thing to rocket launch. Yeah, I, I would guess that that's going to happen. But, you know, you could also guess this thing could also just uh, tank. And let's just take a quick look at the numbers here. Uh, bonds, the 10-year, which we seem to be turning to on a weekly basis now. The So the 10-year is at 1.7%. And... Yeah, just looking over, you look at the Bund, the German 10-year bond is at minus 0.296%. 
That's almost minus 0.3%. And the French is just below zero at minus 0.04. And the UK is at 0.826. So that's your bond situation, which has been topical the last month. Gold is back above $1,700 at 1733. Copper still remains above $4 at $4.08. We will get into that and palladium making some moves. So we will talk about that in metal prices. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and do tag us and we will retweet you as long as there's nothing too political in there. And you can also find us on Instagram where we are posting beautiful photos at the Northern Miner and on Facebook and LinkedIn as well as on YouTube where we also host these podcasts as well as SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that... Let's turn to Hugh Agro, president and CEO of Revival Gold, for our first Mining Minute. Joining me on the podcast today is Hugh Agro, president and CEO of Revival Gold. Hugh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Great to be with the Northern Miner on the podcast. Well, it's great to have you. So tell us about Revival Gold. Why, how, where, how did this all get started and uh why did you decide to go with the gold company? Oh, lots of questions there. Uh, Sorry, yeah, and keep it in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all in the name, really. Uh, revival. Uh, this is about a revival uh, in the gold price, a revival amongst a, a team of uh, professionals in the business who have done very well over the years, and a revival of a project. Uh, we're focused in advancing the Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho, and it's a largest past producing gold mine in the state. Very interesting. And so have you uh, have you worked with gold companies before? Is this your first one? No, um, I, in the industry for about uh, 30 years, uh, cut my teeth at Placer Dome and then went across to Kinross where I led the, the growth side of the business uh, and retired in late 2009 when, um, when things seemed to be uh, topped out. Timing was uh, was very good for me, but I've come back into the business uh, to put together Revival Gold. I do think there's a very good uh, opportunity for investors. You know, if you just kind of step back from the fray here, gold price, you know, ebbs and flows. Uh, we see some down days, we see some down months, and geez, we've seen a, a down quarter here uh, off 10% in the price of metal over the last quarter. But um, overall, the price of gold goes up. And what really captivates my interest is the supply-demand fundamentals in the industry. So as a mining engineer, when I look out at the landscape of opportunities to feed the future uh, growth opportunities for the large uh, and intermediate players, there are few and far between. So growth in global gold production running at about 110 million ounces a year and yet the supply of new gold projects, especially new gold projects in good geography, is only running at about 30, uh, 30 million ounces a year, uh, roughly. And so there's a large and it's a growing gap. And I think that's an opportunity for investors. Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting, the sentiment that surrounds gold. And, you know, like uh, it was really cheap at $1,800 six months ago. And now uh, people are worried. But nevertheless, tell me about your project in Idaho. So this is an exploration project. Well, it's it's kind of like having our cake and eat it too, because it's both exploration and development. We've got a, uh, as I said, uh, Bear Track Garnet's the largest past producer in the state of Idaho. And 
what's left behind is this wonderful brownfield site with an existing ADR gold processing facility, power to the site. And we've got a large resource now, uh, about 3 million ounces in total resources uh, on the project with a PEA on the first phase of that project for a, uh, a relatively meaningful uh, 72,000 ounces a year from an open pit heap leach operation. We've got a large mill project to follow, which is where our exploration is focused, but we're, uh, we're also a developer as we're advancing this project back uh, towards production. That's very exciting. So as uh, just finally, as we wrap up here on this mining minute, what are your major stumbling blocks and how do you see, uh, when, when do you see production on this thing? Are, are you permitted? Uh, how do things stand? Well, we're working off this wonderful brownfield site with uh, some aspects of permitting already in place, but we'll make a decision on production by the end of 2022, so another year and a half's time. And in the meantime, we're continuing with exploration. We've got a resource update coming in the beginning of uh, next year, and then we'll uh, complete a PFS to follow up on our uh, preliminary economics. Uh, so the project's moving uh, relatively rapidly forward. In terms of hurdles, I would say the chief hurdle for all explorer developers today is people. And um, fortunately, mm. we're in a good location. Idaho's got a great mining culture with a population that understands and has the pro professional cadre for, uh, for modern responsible exploration and mining. But people is the number one uh, challenge, I think, for our business. There just are not enough people in our business who have the skill sets to advance these projects. And we're very fortunate. We've got a general manager who ran the prior operation on our team. Uh, we've got a, a number of folks, uh, including our non-exec chairman, uh, who's uh, built out companies like this before, our, our VP Exploration, who's had success on uh, building out a company that's been sold before. And so we're lucky in that regard. But I would say people is a big challenge for our industry uh, in, in general. That is so fascinating to hear because I hear it quite often and, and more and more. And we have articles on the website also that touches on on that very topic. So it's very interesting to hear, but it sounds like you're well-staffed there. Well, thank you for joining us and we will hear from you again. And what was your ticker before we go? It's uh, on the Venture Exchange RVG and on the OTC QB RVLGF. Okay, excellent. Well, this is Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold. Hugh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adrian. And if you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can go to revival-gold.com and learn more about the project. And turning to the website, we have a very interesting article on lithium by Chris Berry, special to the Northern Miner. And yeah, it is called Three Forces Set to Power Lithium-Ion Supply Chains. And it is on the supply chain. And he starts out by talking about the blocking of the Suez Canal last week. And... He uses that as a launch pad to talk about the scarcity of lithium. And so let me just skip down to the second paragraph here. The battle lines are being drawn around the most important aspect of the energy transition, security of supply of raw materials, in particular, high purity lithium. Now, lithium, I mean, and he's going to write about to say, like, was there's an oversupply and all of a sudden, you know, lithium is becoming the super critical material and it's part of this larger theme that people had been talking about since the last super cycle of resource nationalism. And it seems like all those predictions were just 10 years too early because now post-COVID and the supply chains 
kind of being reorganized, people want their own lithium. So continuing with the article, it is clear that the oversupply of lithium, which characterized the market in 2018 and 2019, is almost at an end as investors drive share prices higher. We are seeing in the market a scramble to tie up lithium resources as governments look to develop homegrown lithium supply chains and provide subsidies. Another topic we hit pretty often on this show. We are at the heart of the battle here, folks. As stakeholders are also realizing that not all lithium is created equal and developing low-cost sustainable supply chains is a must. For example, electric vehicles, EVs, require high-purity lithium chemicals while the ceramics and grease businesses can use lower-quality material. Prices for lithium or cobalt are well off their recent cyclical lows and have more room to run higher as momentum behind EV sales continues. And that is true as well. We have seen that in the metal prices section that cobalt has really rocket launched in the last couple of months. Continuing on a little bit lower in the article, the threat of a structural shortage of energy metals has always loomed in the back of investors' minds. But this is hardly credible as the problem of both high prices and low prices tend to be solved through human innovation and capital availability. It has been encouraging to see the amount of capital raised in the sector with Albemarle raising $1.3 billion, SQM $1.1 billion, Lithium Americas $500 million, Piedmont Lithium $122 million, Vulcan Resources $92 million, and Sigma Lithium $33 million, among some of the more recent equity raises in the lithium sector. Now, this is the, the rub. So investors can expect more capital raises in 2021 as lithium producers diversify their sources and tap new pools of investors in different markets. And here it is. While this scale of capital accumulation is something the industry only dreamed about in recent years, it still isn't enough to meet an expected tripling of lithium demand by 2025 and a doubling again to 2030. While more capital is needed, the trick for investors is to gauge how company management teams are deploying this capital, as it will surely dictate returns in the future. So all to say... Kind of a new narrative on lithium, frankly, uh, from the oversupply. Lithium, it's kind of funny. It, it, people predict it so much that lithium is going to take off that you start to think it's not going to take off. And now it's finally taking off. And it's like, oh, that was real. So very interesting. And just finally, Chris Berry talks about how cycles in the energy sector have been vicious could lithium be facing a robust bull market over the next decade? The years 2018 and 2019 were characterized by a severe oversupply of lithium feedstock thanks to rather short-lived high prices in 2016-2017. The subsequent bust sent a new breed of generalist investor rushing for the exits, and we have only just begun to see them warm up to the EV thematic again as a pinch in battery quality raw material looms thanks to recent years of underinvestment in mining capacity. So... Long story short, Chris Berry is expecting volatility in the energy metals, and he, he's a part of House Mountain Partners, an energy metals advisory firm. So very interesting work, Mr. Berry. Thank you. Now, for another take, we have Jeffrey Christian, one of our favorites on the program, and he has a commentary called The Uncertainty Lurking in Auto Propulsion Technology. And Jeffrey Christian has been writing about EVs for a very long time. And we, I interviewed him 
about six months ago now, so it's time to have him back on. And he was quite skeptical of how fast this electric vehicle transition would happen. So let's see the latest from Jeffrey Christian. There is a great deal of uncertainty about what the future of automotive propulsion technology will be. This presents challenges to capital formation and allocation. I believe Jeffrey Christian wrote a book, like, I don't know if it was the late 70s, that might be too early, but something like that early in his career on electric vehicles and batteries. So he is a bit of an expert on this. For one thing, a lot of people do not realize that these uncertainties even exist. The uncertainties should cause investors, business developers, and executives to be extremely cautious in their expectation as to what share of the vehicle market electric vehicles will take in the next 10 years. Furthermore, the uncertainties are causing investors and business executives who are more aware to practice exactly that level of caution. This in turn slows capital allocation and development of the raw materials and components needed to expand EV production, raising the risks that the march to EVs will not live up to the greatest expectation of how fast they may take market share. So Jeffrey continues with the skepticism. Five years ago, the level of uncertainty about EV market share penetration was very high. People were not certain if EVs would take a major share of the on-road vehicle market, let alone how fast such a transition would occur. There also were questions about which type of batteries might be used and which metals would be required. Over the past five years, a consensus view has formed that EVs represent the future of motive power for road transportation. The reality is that five years from now, that consensus may have evaporated, replaced by hydrogen engines and some other technology largely being ignored in 2021. This is not to suggest that hydrogen engines or anything else would be real material in five years, but rather that the enthusiasm and beliefs and possibly government proclivities, if not policies, easily could shift away to a focus on EVs to something else. And finally, he just uses an example from history. This is nothing new. In the two decades following the invention of the motor wagon in 1886, the consensus was that EVs would be the motive power of the future, displacing gasoline, diesel, and even steam. By 1900, most of the cars being built were electric. By 1920, the EV industry was largely gone. Some of the brightest and impartial observers of the current search for future technologies, again, are thinking that electric propulsion could once more prove to be an interim transition propulsion technology that displaces gasoline and diesel while serving as a bridge to something else. CPM is not here to tell you what the future has in store. We're here to tell you to be careful about assuming that what the future has in store is clearly visible today. And this is why I really like Jeffrey Christian. He's just skeptical. He's skeptical. So he has some charts in here, which are very interesting. I am just scraping the surface on this. And then I'll just turn to the end here just to see how this wraps up. There's an additional bogeyman to consider. EVs are not as green as many promoters and politicians hold them out to be. Most of the electricity still comes from coal, gas, and oil-powered plants. In the 1990s, the EU political elite pushed diesel fuel and vehicles with subsidies, claiming diesel exhaust somehow was cleaner than petrol exhaust. It made no sense, but it was politics, not science. The EU governments gave up their deceit roughly a decade ago, at great cost to oil refiners, automakers, consumers, and society as a whole. A similar letdown may well await EV advocates. So Jeffrey is saying there was a turn to diesel in the 1990s, pushed by the EU political elite, and that that never turned out to be 
a good solution driven more by politics than by science. And he is suggesting that perhaps electric vehicles and electric propulsion technology may have something similar in store. So ever the provocateur, Jeffrey Christian, thank you. We have a sale that fell through. This is by Carl A. Williams, senior reporter for the Northern Miner. Argonaut Gold has reported that the sale of its Anapala Gold project in Mexico, 180 kilometers south of Mexico City, has fallen through as the purchasing company AP Mining cannot fulfill its financial and certain regulatory and other approvals. Argonaut's president and CEO, Peter Dougherty, said in a press release, that, quote, after extending the agreement once already, we feel we are better off pursuing other options for Annapala at this time, end quote. On closing the deal, Argonaut would have received $30 million in cash, a further $10 million upon construction, and a 1% NSR, net smelter royalty, for the project. It would have also received 9.9% of the shares of the acquiring company, which would have been formed by a business combination between AP Mining and Capital Pool Company, Pinehurst Capital, the second. So, deal falls through. Finally, we have this piece by Frick Ells, executive editor of Mining.com. Stars are aligning for a uranium price rally. And it says here, the uranium market is emerging from years in the doldrums as the overhang from the nuclear disaster in Japan is cleared and global demand picks up steam. The spot price for U308 moved above $30 per pound for the first time this year as uranium producers and mine developers hoover up above ground inventories and reactor construction continues apace. So very interesting. So the spot price has risen above $30 still. You see the stocks are very anticipatory uh, because the spot price is still quite low. Uh, two new research notes from BMO Capital Markets and Morgan Stanley say today's price marks a floor and predict a rally in prices over the next few years to the $50 level by 2024. The stars seem to be aligning for a new phase of nuclear energy investment, with the US, China, and Europe bolstering the bull case for fuel this month. And we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago with Rowan Raddy, that really nuclear is increasingly being seen as the environmental solution. Although nuclear energy was not mentioned explicitly in the $2 trillion Biden infrastructure proposal, it's federally mandated quote, energy efficiency and clean electricity standard, end quote, is hardly achievable without it. Over the weekend, leaked documents showed a panel of experts advising the EU is set to designate nuclear as a sustainable source of electricity, which opens the door for new investment under the continent's ambitious green energy program. So this is getting pretty real. You know, I don't see the EU saying that unless they have no choice. Like, I think that's the deal with nuclear is if you want a low carbon economy, you kind of need it. Like, I don't, I think that's the issue. That's why the EU, I mean, don't forget Germany after Fukushima got rid or announced that they were getting rid of all their nuclear reactors. So now the EU is designating it as a sustainable source of electricity. Keyword, sustainable. Finally, China's five-year plan released a fortnight ago also buoyed the uranium market with Beijing planning up the country's nuclear energy capacity by 46% from 48 gigawatts in 2020 to 70 gigawatts by 2025. So you can read the details on this and they even talk about the opacity of the market, which we also discussed with Rowan. So a very interesting piece by Frick Els, which I believe is going to be on the front page of the Northern Miner being put together today. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. 
And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on Tuesday, April 6, 2021, gold is trading at $1,734.23 per ounce. That is $51 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $24.98 per ounce. That is $1.04 higher than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $1,207.95 per ounce. That is $49 higher than last week. Palladium is trading at $2,677.38 per ounce. That is $97 higher than last week, and that just passed the highest price that we have quoted on this program since I started quoting prices like a year and three quarters ago. So palladium has broken out. Very impressive. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.98 per pound. That is eight cents lower than last week. Aluminum is two cents lower at a dollar per pound. Lead is unchanged at 88 cents per pound. And nickel is 12 cents lower at $7.26 per pound. Tin also lower at $12.41 per pound. That is 15 cents lower than last week. Cobalt also lower at $22.73 per pound. That is 80 cents lower than last week. And zinc is three cents lower at $1.25 per pound. The big standout this week is palladium at $2,677.38 per ounce. And precious metals also recovering after last week. Industrial metals a little lower, consolidating. Let's see what happens, but... Nothing dramatic over there. So palladium steals the show. Precious metals looking good. Industrial metals consolidate. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Hugh Roberts, director at CHR Metals Limited. And he is in conversation with Mining.com executive editor Frick Ells at the Global Mining Symposium. And this was recorded on February 24th. Hugh discusses China's economic development over the last 20 years and how it's impacted industrial metal prices, and he also speculated on how the low-carbon economy might fuel a new super cycle in commodities. So I will let Frick do the rest of the introductions, and I will see you on the other side. We have lots of ground to cover. I think we should uh, get into it. You cut your teeth as a working for a broker at the LME. As Anthony said, you became a leading zinc and lead specialist. You worked for uh, Woodmac before Woodmac was Woodmac. But I'm really interested in uh, how you formed CHR Metals. When we spoke before, I mean, you do have a sort of a different approach to the global industrial economy. You have different methods. You're very much on the ground. Um, tell us a bit more about CHR. Yeah, good, thanks. Well, um, as you said, um, I was uh, previously a number of other companies and uh, Brook Hunt, which was before Woodmac. And there I met uh, my colleague in CHR Metal, Metals, Claire Hassel. And we'd started traveling 
well, initially I was traveling in the, in the former Soviet Union in the early 90s and then in the mid-90s started traveling in China. And we realized that something quite remarkable was going on and wanted to spend um, uh, more time there and, and to find to track down what was happening and decided in early 2000 that uh, perhaps the best way to do that would be to strike out on our own. And uh, because I'd worked for, actually for, for Kaminko, I uh, knew, knew the lead and zinc business reasonably well, Claire being the uh, zinc analyst uh, with, with Brooke Hunt. So we decided we would stick with those metals because that was the industry we, we knew best and basically um, started traveling to China. And uh, from 2000, uh, I would say that apart from uh, last year, for obvious reasons, we've been in China between three, four, five times a year, sometimes spending up to two and a half months a year in China. We set up our own office there in 2006. Uh, we still have an office, uh, which is actually based in uh, Xi'an in Shanxi province. And um, over the course of 25 years, we focused on basically going to see for it what it looks like for ourselves. So we don't really rely on other people's data. We think that you have to go and look at what it looks like on the ground. So we've been up to the far northeast of uh, Inner Mongolia, stood on the Russian border, and gone down to the far southwest in Yunnan and stood on the Vietnamese and Burmese borders and most places in between, and essentially grown to understand what was actually making China tick. And that was particularly important in those early years because things were really happening incredibly fast on the ground. Yeah. And quite quickly, we realized that although there were uh, official data being published, often what we were seeing was not actually. Um, matching what the data was saying. And we got to the point really after the global financial crisis where the mismatch between what we were seeing on the ground in terms of mine production and what was being reported was getting to, to a point where we just couldn't justify it anymore. So we started deriving our own series for mine production. But at the same time, we were also looking at the economic developments in China and realized that if, if the mine production was being misreported, then probably uh, we want to be looking at what was going on with, with some of the other data as well, in particular industrial production. And that is how we started looking very closely at how we could actually come up with an index which would better explain what was happening in China in terms of real data, uh, data which was coming out of China, but actually was going to present a slight, or did in fact present a rather different picture from the official yeah. data. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, I find always uh, re researching for for articles you get all this data and then there's there's just this black box sometimes when it's when it comes to china so you know getting the real data uh you know kind of sets you sets you apart i believe you have something like 70 series that you follow and that which you then uh, compile your ip index for that's right so for china we we're following about um and, and these are data which are published every month in China, uh, not published for, for January and February until they're combined, but, but generally get every month, about 70 um, uh, individual data series covering everything from coal production, steel production, um, milk, meat, uh, detergents, fertilizer, medicines, electricity, a whole right across the whole range. The, the, the difficulty was right at the beginning was to try and work out how to weight these different elements within the index. And so we went back to 
all the way back to 2005 with monthly data and worked that through to, to 2010 and beyond and spent a lot of time <clears throat> experimenting, trying to work out how we could actually weight them so that they actually represented something that made some sense and what looked right on the ground. And eventually we, we were fairly happy with what we'd, what we'd done. And so from 2010 began to publish our own index of Chinese industrial production in combination with the global index that we published. And um, quite remarkable, I mean, probably not surprisingly, I mean, the data that was coming out from our series was not that very standard 6% per annum, per annum, per annum that we all got yeah. used to seeing. Right. Coming back to uh, 2020, I think you said that uh, strangely enough, or maybe not strangely, uh, 2020 was the one year where your your index and your data sort of aligned with the official numbers uh, out of Beijing. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. I I think I think let, let's just go back a bit. And there's been a lot of talk about the about the super cycle, the first one, and whether we're in another one now, and also the fact that we seem to have been in a in a period of a number of years where certainly um, you know the mining industry has felt that prices perhaps have not reflected the the uh, effort that was being made if you like to produce these metals so if we go back to the middle of, of of the last decade which was when i think most people would reckon that the um, previous super cycle kind of came to an end so you know if we if we look at it starting in the early 2000s it kind of petered out um, in 2014 2015 when we started to see prices really beginning to still actually remain relatively high but certainly come back a long way and if we look at the the series that the chinese produced uh in terms of annual industrial production we will see 2014 8.3 2015 6.1 16 is 6 then 6.6 6.2 5.7 which is 2019 and then 2.8 in 2020. well our series was in 2014 6.9 but in 2015 which was the year that uh, a number of metals, uh, copper, zinc, lead, all the rest of it, people began to sort of really scratch their heads about what was going on with the price. We actually estimate that the Chinese industrial economy was in recession in 2015. So we have an, actually a small fall, minus 0.8. And since then, um, our growth rates were 2.3, 3.4. And in 2018, actually a very severe annual recession in the industrial sector in China. So for us, the the weakness that we've seen in metal prices, although I would hesitate to say that they we think they're particularly weak, but certainly weak relative to where they were uh, in the period immediately post the recovery from the global financial crisis. And given that China is 30, 40, 50% of the market for a lot of these metals, it kind of made sense to us. Now, 2017, was very strong in the beginning of the year and then tailed off sharply at the end when a lot of heavy industry was shut down in the northern provinces in order to uh, improve air quality. Now, everybody wrote about that at that time. Everybody knew that these industries would be shut down, being told to restrict output, um, uh, steel, uh, coal production, heavy industries across the board. But somehow nobody thought that that would show up in the data and it didn't show up in the official data it was still there you know 2018 6.2 percent growth well when you've lost the whole swathe of heavy industry how does it not affect the growth so 
our index is capturing that. And, and, yes. and you know, I wouldn't say that uh, the data is, 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 should be absolutely seen as, as, as 100% accurate exactly what's happening, but it gives a much better flavor for what's mm. going on in China than simply relying on the official data. The fact right. that we've got 2020 pretty close, I mean, we think growth was 1.6%, the official data is 28 um, uh, uh, makes me slightly worried that, that perhaps something has, has gone askew because it's been different before. But at least the, the method we've used has been exactly the same throughout. We've, we've just simply done exactly the same thing. So maybe that is about where we are with China right now. Right. Yes, it's, uh, in your monthly report, you had a, a fascinating graph uh, where you compared the recovery in the global economy and industrial production post uh, the global financial crisis 2008, 2009 versus the COVID recovery. So obviously, uh, any of us involved with trying to do economic forecasting, and in particular, Today we're looking at what's going to happen to the metal markets. Uh, we, we want to know about what's happening in industrial production. And we were looking, as COVID really started to develop, some kind of analog that we could begin to think about what the recovery could, could actually look like. And initially, one thought, well, maybe it will be a bit like the global financial crisis. But actually, very quickly, um, we, we saw that that was not the case. The downturn was much sharper and the actual recovery was better as well. So what I've done here is I've gone back to the first month of the global financial crisis. So we've set that at uh, August 2008 and the first month of COVID, January 2020, and set that as 100 and then actually tracked to see what actually happened. So you see uh, very clearly in, in red for, 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 for COVID, you've got that very sharp um, downturn the global number very early on, which of course is the, the, the collapse in China. And then subsequently, as, as COVID spreads out across the world, you see it coming down very sharply. And then it begins to bounce back pretty quickly. And um, one could argue whether that's V-shaped or it's some kind of slightly elongated swoosh, but it's certainly a pretty impressive recovery. And from the point of view of the global industrial production output, uh, we can see that by month 10, so October, we were already back to wow. where we were in January in terms of total output. Uh, and for the OECD countries, so the mature economies, the larger economies, the recovery had come back as well, but not quite as, not quite as strong. And that's very different from what happened during the global financial crisis, which went down. And I suppose this is what people right at the beginning of COVID were saying, well, are we going to have a V-shaped? an L-shaped, uh, swoosh shape. And of course, the recovery after the global financial crisis at this point was looking very much L-shaped. In other words, we went down and we weren't really coming up very fast at all. So then we get to thinking, well, well, what actually has happened here in terms of why we're getting such a different outcome? And honestly, I think that it comes down to the fact that during the COVID crisis, and as governments were, I mean, really shocked by what was happening, we saw governments forced to act very quickly and to spend money directly supporting the economy. So money was flowing directly to people in the form of checks from the government, furlough in the UK, uh, short-term working schemes in Germany, other schemes, similar schemes around the world. So government money was simply going out. There were also um, uh, tax breaks, tax delays, things like that. 
So we had a, a, a true, real fiscal stimulus, which got the recovery going. And we contrast that with what happened in the global financial crisis. And yes, there was, um, uh, yes, there was an attempt at stimulus. Yes, there was uh, government outlay. But an awful lot of that government outlay was in the form of, of directing the central banks to make very easy money conditions and actually print money. But also where, where there were direct bailouts, those bailouts were going to the banks. And so the banks benefited from the bailout, but the money was not actually flowing through yeah. to what I would call the, the real economy. Yeah. And critical for this then, and, and, and why I think it's, why I wanted to show this chart, is that if we're looking forward, a couple of things that are interesting. Firstly, the, the, the growth appears to flatten out quite dramatically, but we shouldn't be put off by the mathematics behind this. We are actually forecasting on an annual basis, extremely strong growth in 2021. So we're, right. we're, we're looking at growth rates, which are going to be um, uh, you know, in, the, in the seven, eight percent mark, which is actually very, very strong. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that an awful lot of that has actually happened already or is happening right now. But the other thing to point out is that in order to ensure that that, that growth is sustained, what we mustn't see or what we hope won't happen is governments pulling back too quickly on the true fiscal stimulus that, that that's been put out. I and mean, the real problem here is, is that governments have spent a huge amount already. And I was just looking today, I checked out the um, on, on the IMF and the IMF's website and sort of some of the numbers um, of, of additional spending as a, as a proportion of GDP. And we see here the United States 16.7% additional spending in 2020. And if you go back to the global financial crisis, it was about six. I mean, the UK is 16.3. Uh, Japan is, is, is enormous, um, another 15 or 16%. And even countries like Brazil, uh, you know, spending 8% of GDP in additional spending in 2020. So the critical thing to kind of watch at this point is, will governments have the stomach to keep spending at these elevated rates, particularly to support those industries that simply can't back, bounce back very quickly. The hospitality, the travel, um, a lot of the service sectors and things like that. But at the same time, there's gonna be huge pressure coming from those people who, who feel that we're already spending too much. So in Europe, you're gonna find the Northern European economies, um, you know, the, the, the Netherlands, Austria, Germany, pushing back against the Italians, the Spanish, to some extent, the French, who will want to keep spending. And it's, that's the battle that we're going to see coming out. So our hope and our forecast here is, is on the basis that, that that fiscal spending does continue. But obviously, there's going to be some, some challenges. You have the 1.9 trillion that may or may not, or it's looking increasingly likely going through in the U.S., and apart from that, uh, there seems to be finally uh, uh, appreciation for infrastructure spending in the US and uh, I guess in, in Europe to an extent as well. Then you have the energy transition. So we have lots of things uh, coming together here. So yeah, I guess it's not surprising that there is talk of a super cycle. What is your take on, on all of this? What is, what is gonna uh, upset uh, this apple cart? Because, uh, you know, when everybody seems to agree on something, then, you know, 
you might miss something. Well, obviously, from from my, my biography, you can see I've, I've lived through a few cycles uh, in, in my time. So if we go back to the last super cycle, and I was looking around to see if I could get some sort of definitions of what people were thinking, because I remember at the time we were beginning to hear super cycle, but I think we heard it later than the reality, because I see people talk about it's, oh, well, the late 1990s. But I can assure you that... Um, as a, an analyst looking at zinc and lead at that time, you know, in 2001, 2002, we were looking at, at zinc prices down as low as $800 a ton, lead prices at 450, copper prices were, everything was very low and it didn't feel like the start of a super cycle to us. What of course did kickstart it was the accession of China into the WTO at the end of 2002. And so suddenly, China began to take on a much bigger uh, focus, but it did take a couple of years. It was 2004, 2005 before it really kicked off. And at that point, um, yes, one could certainly see that there was something of, of a super cycle going on. And what one's got to take into account, of course, is that if you look at, we say the super cycle was 2000 to 2015, if you want to call that, you know, the, the size of the Chinese economy, it expanded three times in that period. Right. Three times. I mean, absolutely astounding. And on the ground, one could see it. You know, the largest high-speed rail network from scratch. Right. The one of the world's most extensive automotive networks from scratch. Airports, hotels, and massive, massive residential construction. Right. So, so that was the last cycle. So now we're sitting here today, talking about a new super cycle. Um, I suppose one could say that you know the, the 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 analogy is well, it's not China WTO and the emergence of China. It is the new low carbon economy, which is going to require you know a lot of materials uh, and a right. lot of materials that we've talked about today. Um, and I think that we're certainly onto something. My problem with it is is not so much that this isn't going to happen in terms of decarbonization, electrification, all the rest of it. But it's 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 the pressures that we're seeing being put on 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 certain of the metals, and I mean a lot of a lot of the people in the audience, you've probably seen it yourself. I mean, you know, Glencore's analysis recently in terms of what's going to be needed in copper, nickel, uh, cobalt, and zinc. I mean, they are eye-wateringly eye-wateringly large increases, yeah. which frankly have never been seen before. And right. so the question then comes is. The, the, the price implications for some of these additions that are required are also eye-watering. And do those then actually squeeze out the kind of transition that we're looking for? I mean, is something slightly different going to come along? And I suppose that's where, you know, that, that, that's where the debate is. You've got, you've got the one side that says it's electric cars, it's, it's renewable energy, it's this and that. And, the other. and in order to do that, this is what we're going to need. But frankly, looking at this and seeing, you know, a, a, a doubling in copper output between now and, and, and 2050, um, how on earth is that going to happen? We've never seen that scale in that short time frame. And, and of course, it comes after years of uh, underinvestment when during the lean times, uh, people weren't, uh, you know, Putting greenfield projects, building greenfield projects, or so uh, there's catch up to do from the supply side as well. There is some catch up to do. I mean, I, I would say that 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 the catch up required um, 
from the cycle that started, say, in 2000 was huge because we had had years and years and years of prices which were simply crazily low. I mean, I can remember, um, you know, back then forecasting a lead price of $600 and a zinc price of $1,250. And, 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 and people out there saying, you guys are mad. I mean, you can't possibly believe it's going to ever be that high. Um, you know, so obviously, you know, we should have been more ambitious, but it was very difficult at that time. I think that, that the argument that we've had a major fall off in investment in, in new mining, uh, I think applies not really across the board. I think that we've seen um, a fair amount come through and say the metals that, that we're following, probably less so in copper and certainly for some of these, these metals which are going to be required. Um, yes, clearly, in terms of the, the scale of what is needed is huge. I mean, I would just say that when you look at the metals that are needed, copper and, and, and cobalt in particular, um, there's, there's just one word that comes to mind, one country that comes to mind, and that's Congo. And, yeah. um, you know, if, if you can unpick Congo and, mm. and, and do something there, then yes, maybe you do see increases in copper and cobalt of these scales. Right. Critical points. Gentlemen, this is such a great conversation, and I really do hate to interject, but we do have time constraints, unfortunately. Hugh, thank you so much for your time on thank this. You. Your insight, your analysis is fantastic. And thank, thank you. Thank you very much. You know what I wondered was, if you're putting out numbers on the Chinese economy that's different from the government numbers, and you're working in the country, are they just cool with that? I, I, that, that would be my sort of final little follow-up. Is, is, is that a problem? Anyway, maybe I misunderstood somehow, but it's pretty cool uh, to get that boots-on-the-ground view from Hugh Roberts and a great interview by Frick Ells. Thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. If you want to help the podcast out, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Leave us a comment on SoundCloud like some of you are doing. It's much appreciated. And... Until next week, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.